The Mets have the biggest first place lead in baseball at four and a half games. What a time to be alive. We will discuss the Mets taking two of three from the Diamondbacks, the lineup getting hot, what to do with David Peterson, and look ahead to their series with the Padres. Our special guest this week is 2012 NL Cy Young Award winner. It's former Mets knuckleballer R.A. Dickey. Lots to do on episode 57, the Johan Santana no-hitter edition of Amazing But True from the New York Post. Let's take the field. So amazing. Amazing but true. Orange and blue. So amazing. Here's the pitch. New York folks. It's out of here. We got you. Welcome to Amazing But True, our New York Mets podcast. From the New York Post, this podcast is only on YouTube. No, we're just kidding. We're not a, a Wednesday night versus the Diamondbacks. Jake Brown, Nelson Figueroa. Follow us on Twitter at Jake Brown Radio, at FiggyNY. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get podcasts. Give us a five-star rating. Write in a nice review, if you will. We love those ratings. We love those reviews. The good ones, of course. And if they're bad, they make for good content. Joining us later in the show, we have a hell of an interview, a long one with R.A. Dickey, the 2012 Cy Young winner, Figgy. He is so smart. I already am dumb, but I feel dumb when I talk to R.A. Dickey because this guy could probably read, like, the Bible in, like, four minutes. Like, it's just um, unbelievable how cool R.A. Dickey is. Loved having him on, so check out that interview. But, Figgy, here we are again. First place, 27-21, and 21, the biggest lead in baseball reinforcements back it wasn't a pretty series it probably should have been a sweep but you take every series when you could get especially when half your rosters still on the injured list oh and it just keeps getting better and better i mean they're finding people out of the woodworks they're claiming anyone who has gotten designated for assignment you've got a, a blankenhorn on the roster now you've got williams who's come in and made a big splash right away both defensively and with the bat it's been very fun almost each and every night to see a lineup of half the guys you don't, haven't even ever heard of, and then to see the other guys starting to come back. Pete Alonso coming back in a big way. Uh, Pilar uh, already back on the field. What a warrior. We'll get into that a little bit later. Just watching all these guys, and, and this team has gelled together. I, I question them back in the the Philly series I did not see them kind of standing up for each other and, and you know taking the challenge of what the Phillies threw out there on the field against them when you know you had knucklehead challenging Dom Smith to a fight but you know what through adversity you got to find it you got to go one of two ways right it's fight or flight and this team has been fighting and fighting and fighting night in and night out and I've loved what I've seen from them and even though the bullpen has sputtered here during this Diamondback series it was only expected because of all the work that they've had to endure door to help keep this team afloat you got Seth Lugo coming back um, and, and looking fantastic didn't look like he missed a beat and the team is just ready to take on another first place team or well, just out of first place in the San Diego Padres and we saw that series with the the Dodgers you know not too long ago so it's going to be some exciting baseball this weekend I'm here for it yeah if you got a wild name you're going to be a Met whether it's Hugh <laughs> Quattlebaum whether it's Travis Blankenhorn Wilfredo Tovar who who got the axe because of Travis Blank Blankenhorn, you're going to be here. So we love these wild names. Uh, hopefully Blankenhorn could be a contributor. You know, the Mets are fighting David Peterson, not as much. 
Absolutely got shelled Wednesday. Figgy hurt the Mets. Luckily, they you know the bats. You know Jacob Degrom's looking on like, where are these runs for me? You get five <laughs> in the first inning or four in the first inning for for Peterson, who gives them right back. I mean everything. It, Madison Bumgarner went from a no hitter to a hitter meaning every player gets a hit. I mean, it was unbelievable that first inning and then the double play he gets out of it. But Peterson's got to give you more, bro. And what do you do here? I mean, you're, you're in a tough spot with Carrasco probably not back till July. With Syndergaard, maybe August, maybe September, we're hoping. But they may be in a position where they have to make a deal. Do you call back up Sean Reed Foley and make him the opener? And then Lugo pitches a couple innings, and we'll get into Lugo in a second. What do you do with Peterson? Because, listen, if he's not going to give you one or two innings, he cannot be on this roster yeah no you, you got to have better expectations than just you know one or two innings as a starter and, and Peterson has that for himself the majority of his starts have been okay he's had a few good ones he's had a few stinkers like last night or yesterday's game. Tell me what he's doing wrong. What is Peterson doing wrong as a former pitcher? I see a couple of things. Well, one, as a young a young player, and you're trying to acclimate yourself, and you're developing a routine of when to get ready once every five days. And if you're that number five, somewhere around where Jacob DeGrom is going to be, they're going to bump you back. And that's a hard pill to swallow because you've been the man your whole life. You've been the man all the way through the minor leagues. You know, you bump other people out. You don't get bumped out. He's David Peterson. You know, he's a high draft pick. There's no reason for it. And now he's gotten, he got bumped and it pushed him back to an absorbent amount of days off where now your routine has changed. So you have to, you know, train differently. You have to pitch differently. You have to figure out what to do with the extra days. Do you long toss? Do you throw an extra side? What do you do? So this was a learning experience for him. Whatever he did, did not work. More than that, I believe it wasn't so much the preparation for the game. I have a feeling that he is tipping pitches. There's just too much involved when he faces the Phillies. You see them really gang up on him one or two big innings they have against him. It's as if they know what's coming. And until he makes an adjustment, until he kind of gets reminded of, hey, stop doing whatever it is that he does. And I can't pinpoint it as of yet. I don't have enough video footage to break it down. I don't have enough video. But I know as a pitcher, that feeling of, hey, man, I just made a nasty change up down and away, and this guy didn't even budge. And then all of a sudden, I throw a fastball inside, and he turns on it for a double. You're like, no, 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 that can't happen. You know what I mean? I'm setting this guy up. He might have thought another changeup was coming. I threw 93 inside. He turned on it as if I was telling him what was coming. And I believe in my heart of hearts, that's what's happening right now. And, and I've seen it countless number of times, especially with young pitchers, and especially with a guy who really relies only on two pitches. That's one of the downfalls of having only two pitches. Craig Kimbrell, all the way in the playoffs, I remember he got picked apart by the Astros, ironically, because they knew what pitches he was going to throw, when he was going to throw it uh, against Boston. They, they could see just the way he set up his hands or the way his hands came off his body, it was going to be a fastball. If his hands came tight towards his body, it was going to be a slider. So what did he do? He moved his hands down to his belt. And I remember it was uh, Reddick was up to bat. And as Reddick is waiting up at bat, he sets at the belt, which is a different set place than normally up top by his letters. And he had to call timeout and look towards the dugout like, uh, what the hell's going on? So that little change threw the hitters off until they can figure out exactly if he's still doing something that they can readily read. I think something like that is going to have to happen where he's going to have to change his hand placement just to kind of give himself a little bit of leeway until these guys try to figure him out again. This is why we're number one right here, Figgy. Bring, <laughs> you know, I bring the humor. You bring the analysis. Whatever you just said was like German to me. But I get it. But I mean, that's stuff that only Figgy could do. 
and that I can't. You know, I could I could read you my bar mitzvah playlist, the party hardy hits, and and speak a little Hebrew, Barakatzad and I, but I can't tell you about palms and balls and and all that. So good analysis, Figgy. Palms and balls and and Dickies, oh my. Um, Francisco Lindor is hot. James McCann is hot. Another down is Jonathan VR hamstring tightness, Figgy. And the, the word hamstring, get it out of my head because every time it means six to eight weeks because we saw with McNeil and Crawfordo. VR has been an unsung hero for this team. And now, Figgy, that kind of injury makes me worry he's a guaranteed lock to basically go to the IL, which hurts the Mets considering they're short with infield with J.D. Davis out. I don't. I mean, we're going to see more blank and horn, blank and ship, blank and horn. I don't know his name. <laughs> we're going to see more Peraza, who's, who's not been great, but he's he's filled in the, the Ford okay. That's a hamstring injury. Worries me a little bit, Figgy. Do you think VR could miss some time here? Uh, especially when it's a guy who his game is based on his speed you know el caballo loco uh the the crazy horse it, we see him set a record for getting getting a hit and getting picked off in two consecutive games it's, it's the gift and the curse right when he's successful being crazy on the base paths and and scoring runs because he's being overly aggressive it's a wonderful thing when he runs you out of an inning or gets picked off and he's been picked off i'd say in the last two weeks at least three or four times which is not normal for a major league base runner uh normally you're erring on the side of caution especially when where you're at in the lineup is he's the leadoff position you got guys who can drive him in and you want to give them that opportunity he's been a little too reckless for my liking but this will slow him down a little bit. This hamstring, hopefully it's it's not anything major, but we heard the same thing about Conforto. We heard the same thing about McNeil, and we haven't seen them since. So I'm hoping that it, it is a mild strain. I'm hoping that it's something that he can work through and you know be used sparingly, but he's not exactly going to be the guy that you can go to off the bench and say, hey, we need you to pinch run as the tying run at second base and score on a hit. So his stock definitely falls off, and now you're going to see a lot more of a, a – the no-name guys, or, you know, you got Peraza who has played at least some really good defense, and that's what this team has really done. I think that we haven't given them enough credit defensively for what they've been able to been able to do. You got Marcus Stroman, who's leading the league in ground ball outs, and it's not because they're not making the plays. It's because they're making every single play. They're turning double plays regularly. It's no longer where it was Rosario, and you'd be like, hey, okay, how's he going to mess this up as soon as the ground ball hit to him? And it's literally like, Let's watch what Lindor does. These diving plays he's making night in and night out that almost nobody else can get to. Uh, Peraza being a veteran guy, expecting you know to get a flip from the glove when, when he's on his backside over his shoulder and being able to almost turn two on that. Those are the kind of things that really have been exciting about this team. Their defense has been very, very good. But it also, uh, a guy like McKinney, when he made the two errors down in the right field corner, those will cost you. And that's a reason why a player like, you know, he has a good bat. He has a potent bat where he has some power, but it's plays like that that'll drive a manager and a team crazy. And that's why he becomes expendable because uh, of those lackadaisical plays and not being aggressive to stop the ball and, and letting the ball play him there in the outfield. That's 101. That's baseball 101. And you can't have that happen at the major league level. It cost them a ball game in this Diamondback series. But all in all, the defense has been really, really good. And, you know, the, the catching situation will play itself out. As long as they keep hitting, I don't really care who's catching. Yeah, a couple things to address. One, I thought that ball was probably foul that they they call fair that won the game look at all the field there is so much field out there right and he puts the ball on a quarter of an inch what do you think do you think it was fair or foul 
umpire calls it fair it's fair i i'm 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 old school with that i'm old school without the replay even there's used to not be able to change that so i always tell kids all the time because they all they'll come to me i'll say hey how'd you do this weekend oh well you know the umpire you know called pitches that were balls and they were strikes i go i'm sorry what did he call them he goes balls i said that's because they were balls there's nothing you can do you can't change his mind no matter what you think it is and i used to get over i used to be all over brandon nimmo about this you know brandon nimmo at three two would love just love run towards first base because he felt his eye was better than the umpires the umpire is going to let you know if it's a strike or not and even if it's a little bit off that's something that the human element provides is that a pitcher gets that little bit of a corner if he's been hitting that corner as a pitcher i can respect that so for me i think that ball was fair and it's unfortunate it was right down right on that right on the edge where normally it kicks up chalk that that's what we used to say uh pat mahomes was very funny he would always say that chalk i saw chalk because a, ch a chalk would fly up in the air whenever you would hit that foul line and it's easy to tell if it was fair or foul nowadays because it's painted on it's difficult to tell but they went to replay they have several different angles that we don't have and they were able to see it so it was a fair ball game and my biggest concern or my biggest pet peeve of the whole night was two pitches why are you throwing rojas breaking balls when you throw 99 to 101 miles an hour up in the zone and rojas's swing is a down and down and in swing so he gets that base hit to tie the game and it was uh, marcus stroman unraveling again because mentally he's got to be tougher he gives up the three run absolute bomb that was one of the loudest home runs i've ever heard and i played in that ballpark yeah i think rojas got it the other their rojas got into his head when they did that benches clearing quote unquote brawl <laughs> no yeah that's the that's the one thing with marcus stroman man he, when he's feeling himself he's feeling himself he's good he's locked in i like when he's in his own zone that's a different thing when you start worrying about everything else then it you, you can see how easily it unravels and this is one of the guys who talks about how being an underdog and how mentally tough he has to be and how he prepares and he's 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 physically gifted yes i get all that but the mental side of baseball when you it's called don't wake a sleeping dog the diamondbacks were a sleeping dog they had lost what 13 in a row before they won a previous game before the mets game they were 5 the and 24 in the month of may which is just so dreadful. so you don't wake a sleeping dog whatever rojas wants to say who cares? He's out. Continue being locked in. Continue being uh, uh, trying to pitch a shutout for your team. And instead, he kind of, you know, takes umbrage to whatever whatever the kid said. I don't care. He didn't want to talk about it afterwards because it was already said and done. What it led to was being a little lackadaisical, maybe trying a little bit too hard to strike out everybody to show off and to be able to strut around the mound. And he got two guys on and all of a sudden that Smith home run, dude, I'm telling you, I actually texted Doc Gooden, who was in the, it was in the building watching the game in Arizona. He got a lot of FaceTime, our boy Doc. I, I, te I texted him and I go, how loud, how loud was that bomb, dude? Cause I, I seriously, balls don't get back that far. They usually hit the home runs and you see those fans right behind the right field fence where like uh, Dom Smith almost hit that one the other day. You see him like fall into there, maybe eight, 10 rows up. That was a good 40 rows back and almost onto the concourse. It was a hellacious bomb. And that was a big turning moment in the game because now the, the bullpen had to be perfect. And as good as they've been, they weren't able to be perfect. Diaz winds up blowing the save and Trevor Mays in the game again 
where Seth Lugo. I thought Lugo should have been in. Yeah, I didn't really oh understand. What, I mean, it worked out because they needed Lugo badly on, on Wednesday. I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty. At that point, why was May in and not Lugo? Oh, he's not a high leverage. I mean, listen, Seth Lugo's been in high higher leverage spots than that before. Absolutely. So there's no reason why he should have been in that game. It ends up working out where the Mets use him the next day, but it would have been nice to see him in the extra innings because, you know, Mets get another runner on next inning. Maybe they win and Lugo shuts the door. Lugo's been a closer a couple times for the Mets. It would have been nice to see him seal the door there and not have Trevor May Bologna, who's been used a ton. And, and listen, Struggling. and you got to know there that the month of May is over. It's not, it's, there's no, it's going to be June. It's going to be May. InSync makes the rules. And when the month of June hits, you put Seth Lugo in there and not Trevor May. With VR, man, I got to get my weekly song in. In the words of the Four Tops, it's the same old song. That's what it is. It's the same old song, but with a different meaning since you've been gone. But it's the same old song. Listen, Lindor's averaged up to 209. He's had two hit, one hit, two hit, two hit, one hit, three hit in his last five games. James McCann is now batting what my weight is, around 233. I haven't stepped on the scale in about a month because I'm eating like a fat ass, but last time I was on the scale, I was around 230-ish, so I'm weighing James McCann. He had three hits. He had the four-hitter. Again, that Braves game, so he's really coming along. He's raised his average from 191 to 233. The Mets are getting guys to finally hit that should be hitting, and it's a good time. You know, Seth Lugo pitched the two innings, was solid. We'll get a big four-game test this weekend, Figgy, where you get Cy Young candidate Taiwan Walker going up against Cy Young candidate Yu Darvish. Friday, you're going to face Blake Snell might be Lucchese starts Mets haven't said who's starting yet Saturday you're getting DeGrom versus Musgrove who has been fantastic as well and then Sunday you will get Stroman for the Mets so you get some tough tests this weekend against a second place Padres team but really they're a first place team uh, the Giants are just are hot you know the Giants are 34 and 21 the Padres are a game behind them Dodgers a game and have those three God Figgy the Mets have to win the NL East because I think the wild card spots are going to go potentially to two teams from the West so the Mets are lucky they got this big division lead going into the weekend. The boys are hot. I'm sure you're excited to see a, a battle of two what should be first place teams in San Diego this weekend. Yeah, it, it's going to be some real good baseball. And, and hopefully uh, Tatis Jr., he's one of the great talents in the game. To see him and be able to compete against him will be fun. It's amazing how far... Uh, the Padres have come in a very short amount of time, right? When they go out and they make these trades and they get the starting pitchers like Musgrove and, and Clevenger and they had you Darvish and then they get Blake Snell. I still can't believe they got Snell. Like how is Snell even available? And yet when they, you know, they traded some prospects for him and they didn't trade any, anything major as of yet. Tampa Bay will turn them into superstars and then trade them for four more guys. Blake Snell, how, if you're the Mets, how do you not inquire? How do you not offer major league level talent right now to get a Blake Snell for basically cost. Uh, I think he's only making like 7 million over the next three years, like 7 million per and one of the most fantastic arms in the game. And that would have been a, a huge get when everybody's yelling Bauer and all these other pitchers. I think if you were able to trade to get a Blake Snell, you do it. Um, so the Padres have now made themselves extremely extremely competitive in that West. And you were going to have to do something like that to compete with the Dodgers. Uh, the Giants are a pleasant surprise. 
nobody, nobody saw the Giants doing what they're doing. And credit to Gabe Kapler, who left Philadelphia with all the expectations, maybe learned a thing or two in his first tenure as a manager and gets an opportunity out West and uh, doing the things that they're doing over in San Francisco. So it's it's been a, a very exciting NL West. And, you know, it's going to be a huge test for the Mets to go these four games against the Padres. Lindor, go back to the five games, right? He's batting 391 in those five games. So yes, he has improved his average, but his on-base percentage at 391. 91 slugging 652 he's over a thousand OPS so all that means is he's starting to hit the ball hard he's starting to make contact regularly he's starting to put the ball in play and Keith Hernandez had said it a few times in the broadcast you're seeing much better at bats you're seeing the timing being much better you're seeing the contact being much better and that's all good things going into the month of June for Lindor McCann has also started to turn it on a, a little bit when he's hitting the ball to the right side he's a lot better of a hitter so not being so pull happy it's all good things and Pete Alonso's home run was ridiculous Ooh. as well oh so good to have him back in the line he's taking he's taking some big swings at some curveballs and and you know what I mean he's he's just missing him just missing him. and Dom is hot too so da- Alonzo's return has inspired Dom to get his back up yes no absolutely and, and Dom Smith what over 130 at bats or something like that without a home run so that streak had ended he you know he had almost a chance for two home runs he just missed that second one into right field and so it's it's been it's been good it's been more promising from the Mets lineup so I I look forward to this series this weekend you got some good starting pitching going whoever's going to be the you know second game starter but then you also have DeGrom on a Saturday I can't wait to watch that there are some El Caballo Caballo Locos in the Mets lineup right now and this is why we have Spanish Academy is that is that what you termed uh, VR? You said he's a crazy horse. What was the term for it? Caballo loco. Caballo loco. Bad Bunny's got to start listening. Amazing but true. He's got so <laughs> many hits that are coming from this podcast. And just give me producer credit, Bad Bunny. Give me like one percent, and we'll call it a day. The Mets are hot, which is great because the Knicks season is unfortunately over. Was there at the Garden, and that was frustrating. Sorry, Jimmy. Chicken parm. Boom. Got that references. Before we go to our guest of the day, we got a goodie figgy. Enjoy. Coming up next on Amazing But True, it's our conversation with 2012 NL Cy Young Award winner, R.A. Dickey. Next. Joining us now on Amazing But True is a former Mets knuckleballer and one of my favorite pitchers to watch he pitched for the amazons for three seasons from 2010 through 2012 where in the 2012 season he was an all-star the nl strikeout leader and most importantly the nl cy young award winner going 20 and 6 with a 273 era he pitched 15 seasons in the big leagues from 2001 through 2017 winning 120 games for the Rangers, Mariners, Twins, Mets, Blue Jays, and Braves. He is the author of Throwing Strikes, My Quest for Truth and the Perfect Knuckleball. Please welcome to Amazing But True, R.A. Dickey. R.A., welcome. How are you, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we appreciate it. And we know you're running around with kids. You got kids going to monster schools left and right. How has uh, retirement life these last few years been? You know, I don't really call it retirement. I just call it a change of uh, vocation, really. You know, I mean, I'm I'm full-time dad, and we have a 40-acre farm here in Nashville, and that requires a lot of work, too. And so I'm, I'm always busy either being bad or, or mending a fence here or bush hogging there so it's uh it's been real busy but i really enjoy it i'm sorry B- bush hogging what was that <laughs> yeah bu- bush bush hogging that's a, that's a southern term for mowing acreage above five acres 
Oh my god. That's a new one. Figgy, is there a Spanish academy for that? Bush Hogan? Can we learn something something new every day right there? And I appreciate more knowledge. I can now drop that on Jake whenever I need that one. Holy cow. Yeah, Bush Hogan. (laughs) All right, man. What an incredible journey that you had from the very beginnings. Which which was the um, magazine that posted the picture that came up that you did not have a UCL? Yeah, that that was Baseball Baseball America. Yeah, Baseball America back when that, uh, I think it's still a publication, but it was when I was in college. Yeah, and and what an incredible story where a first-round pick, this guy is locked in, getting ready to get a nice bonus, and they see a picture, and you're you're kind of posed a little funny, and they decide they wanted to check you out, winds up messing with your signing bonus, winds up changing everything around to making everything incentivized, which, uh, listen, you were able to do that and make it up to the big leagues and make that journey. But I think that kind of set the the precedent or uh, the beginnings of R.A. Dickey, because normally, you know, you get a nice bonus and you hear the bonus baby kind of thing. You were a guy that worked so damn hard, man. And I remember day one of meeting you with the Mets and uh, you had your own way of doing things, but you worked your ass off. And it was amazing to watch. And the whole time I'm thinking he works that hard just to throw a knuckleball. And, you know, a couple of <laughs> years later, a couple of years later, you had a Sayo on the mantle. And a couple of years later, I'm uh, over in Taiwan. So there's a big difference there. <laughs> well, we all have our different journeys, Tiggy. You know, I was thankful for, for mine for sure. And it wasn't certainly wasn't easy at times, but it was so much more rewarding having to have recreated kind of my arsenal with the knuckleball and reinvent myself in a way that it was really unique and you know in retrospect it certainly is rewarding but in the moment you know you want to pull your hair out at times i can't even imagine because you're going from someone who used to throw gas and now the story has it that they were thinking about releasing you and you were throwing the knuckleball can you tell that part of the story again how that came about that they developed you as a a knuckleballer sure sure that was um you know, in 2005, I was kind of petering out as a conventional pitcher in the major leagues. I was with the Texas Rangers at the time. I was the 12th man on the 12-man staff. And, you know, Buck Showalter was the manager. Oral Hershiser was the pitching coach at the time. And, you know, for a couple of years before that, when I was in the major leagues as a conventional pitcher, you know, I was throwing low 90s with some stink and a good change up. And that was kind of my arsenal. And, as that started to go away, writing was kind of on the wall as far as being able to get hitters in the AL West out with declining velocity and the inability to locate. I was a guy who had traditionally always relied on stuff, movement, speed, and that that was that had left me. So I was throwing. I came back in '05, and miraculously, I made the team out of camp throwing, you know, between 86 and 88 miles an hour with a little tailing fastball and trying to change speeds, but you know, I was not Maddox. So I was leaving balls over the middle plate and turning around and watching them leave uh, the stadiums quickly. And so after one bad outing against the Angels, Buck Showalter and Oil Hershiser and the general manager and the, the bullpen coach called me in the office and I thought for sure they were going to release me. And I was feeling that I was just inadequate to pitch in the major leagues as a conventional pitcher. And I, I could see it. I was self-aware enough to understand that. But what happened next was a real kind of redemptive moment in my career because they said, you know what, Ari, we, we really appreciate your intangibles and we know that you have a good knuckleball. We've seen you throw it on the side just for fun and, and Oral really believes that you could become the next Tim Wakefield. And so that was the last thing I thought I was going to hear. And they said, we're going to send you down to AAA and let you kind of work on it and figure it out. And that was in 05. And so that was kind of the genesis of me becoming a knuckleballer. Of course, it wasn't five years later that I really felt like I had a presentable major league knuckleball and it took me that long to kind of grind 
find it out in the miners uh, trying to figure that out. Yeah, I mean, it was it was called The Thing, and then it turned into The Knuckleball. What was that transition from The Thing to The Knuckleball? Well, you know, The Thing was a moniker that Joe Morgan gave it on. He saw me pitch against, ironically enough, I was a conventional pitcher starting at the Red Sox and pitching against Tim Wakefield in Arlington. And I was it was the, it was the ESPN Sunday night game of the week, and I was a conventional pitcher at the time, and that was something I threw. And basically, he called it The Thing because he couldn't really figure out if it was a forkball or if it was a knuckleball or if it was a split finger and so he just said I don't know what that is it's just we're just going to call it the thing and I threw it four or five times in the game but all it was really was what would eventually come my become my knuckleball it was a hard hard knuckleball that I couldn't quite take all the spin off of so it presented itself like a forkball and he called it the thing and it kind of got that label but all along it was just a very hard knuckleball what was it was it the New York pizza was it the New York air your three years with the Mets was absolutely remarkable I mean it ends with a Cy Young you put up your best stats by far here in New York. What was it about New York? I, I guess you loved it here because you were pitching out of your mind for those three seasons. Well, I, I did love it there, and I loved the people there, and I loved the fan base and just the kind of the blue-collarness of, of, you know, City Field and all the people that would come to watch. I mean, we got along real well, and, of course, it sure helps things when you're, you know, there's no better place in the world to play than New York if things are going well, and there's no worse place to play if they're not. So it, it's kind of one of those things where I was real fortunate that I started off hot and, and just the story continued to grow through 2012, and I have a real special relationship with that city and the fan base there. Were you mad when they traded you? Did you want to stay here? I did want to stay there. I did want to stay there. I completely recognized the the move as a something that was a business decision and there were I mean Sandy Alderson was a pro and I really enjoyed my time with him and he was real straightforward and honest and I got it and understood they wanted to capitalize on what they thought might be the peak of of a kind of a you know a a project that that had culminated with the Cy Young and so they were going to reap a, a pretty steep reward regardless of where I went but I just you know the funny thing is in the moment I thought in my mind I thought well okay he's going to try to trade me he's telling me he's going to try to trade me it's not going to work out and of course it always plays out differently in the media right the media always think they know what's going on but behind the scenes we had a real cordial interaction over and over again around you know my hopes as far as where I hope to go and in my mind I was thinking okay just just for my family's sake and everything else let's just at least let it be in the U.S. somewhere (laughs) 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 and it ended up up being Toronto which turned out to be wonderful we we had a great experience there for four years but that's kind of how that went you had an opportunity to pitch into your 40s thanks to the knuckleball and you wound up you know calling it quits do you think you had a couple of more years left I absolutely did you know, I, I absolutely did. I, I, I retired with them wanting to exercise my option in Atlanta. John Hart was the general manager at the time. And again, we had a great relationship from our time together in Texas. And, you know, they were willing to bring me back. And it was just the time in my career where, you know, I played for 21 years. And a lot of those years were in the minor leagues. And Figgy, you and I both know what that's like. And so it takes it it takes its toll, you know, on a family. And at the time, you know, I had missed most of my daughter's lives and my son. My son was about 10 years old at the time, 11 years old at the time. And I just felt God was saying, hey, man, you've you've had a good run, but it's time to go be a full-time dad and and pour yourself into your family. And they they had followed me all over the the country from Seattle down to Port Charlotte, Florida, and everywhere in between, not to mention a couple of winter ball stops in Puerto Rico and Venezuela, et cetera, et cetera. And so that, that was kind of a conviction that I felt, and I walked away in 17, you know, fully capable of continuing. Could you still pitch now if a team said, all right, Dickie, we need you. The Mets have one or two more injuries, and they said, all right, yeah. at 46 years old, can you start? 
Well, how you how yeah. you feeling? Yeah, I could. Really? I could. I would. I would need. I would need a. I would need a couple of months just to get right, but I, I could do it. All right. So we'll see you in October. All right. We'll see you. In Queens. <laughs> Listen, I, I could see him putting on the old uh, the, the shoes that had look like monkey paws and doing the box jumps, yeah. getting himself ready. He had these shoes. Yeah. Remember those? He had these shoes yeah, the that looked like monkey paws on the bottom. Yeah, oh my god they were, yeah they were awesome they were awesome he he walked into the weight room and i'll never forget it. everybody just stopped and stared he had these shoes that literally looked like little black monkey paws on the bottom that's, that's exactly right good memory yeah, and, and and we sat back and i remember as he started getting going and people started watching him pitch they started asking where can i get some shoes like that dude maybe that was <laughs> maybe that was the whole secret to the whole thing well i got a, i got a good i got a good contract from the five toe shoe people after that i got a few free pairs because people uh, I'm pretty sure you would have. One of the great, one of the great things about this show is we've had a lot of people on here, and I, I want to give the fans that insight into no matter how big you get, and, and you got to the highest of highs, All Star, Cy Young, uh, Gold Glove, you were able to achieve these things. It's the sacrifices along the way made by others and your support network on the way up that you feel almost torn at that point. Like you said, you had a few more years in you, but you realized how many birthdays you missed, how many graduations you missed, funerals you missed. We didn't come up in a time where we could take off, even for, you know, if your wife was having a child, you couldn't leave. And so we came up in a different time. So to see, to hear players talk about, you know, how much they missed out on, you know, the, the family time and the sacrifices you make along the journey. Yes, it's worth it because of everything you're able to do after, but during it, man, you toss and turn with, with the inability to, to, to kind of live a, a full life. Yeah, no, I, that is incredibly insightful. And I think it's interesting just to give, you know, the, the fan just a glimpse into the reality. I mean, it, it does come with a consequence. There's no doubt about it. I mean, the divorce rate in baseball, as you well know, is astronomical. And, and it's just, it's a hard, it's a hard life grinding it to get there. And then even when you get there, you're used to the, the rigor and the routine. It's not like all of a sudden your life becomes different. You, now you got to stay there. And so it's just this endless cycle of pouring yourself into something that's not necessarily your family in an attempt to achieve what you feel like you were put on this earth to do uh, vocationally. And it takes its toll. I mean, you're already playing 162 games in 183 days, not to mention spring training. So that's over 200 days away from home. And your family is in and out. And you do that for 21 years. And it's a miracle. I am a walking testimony of just the goodness of God and how I have a great support system. You said it best. It's just, you got to have that and and not just have it, but recognize it, you know, that none of us are self-made men here. We have all been poured into. And, you know, I also had Phil Necro and Charlie Huff and Tim Wakefield and countless other people who stood by me when I was trying to this transition. So, you know, I am well aware that I am, you know, any successes that I've had are successes that need, need to be shared. Listen, that's an exclusive elite club, right? And so to, to join that, that fraternity of knuckleballers and have a Cy Young to show for it, that's got to be a real special feeling. Uh, you know, it is. It's satisfying just because I, you know, and the fact that Phil Necro never won a Cy Young, or even his brother Joe, for that matter, if you go back and look at some of the years those guys had, 
I mean, you, you can't help but question a bias at that time against the knuckleball from, from sports writers that might have been, you know, having some decisions to make around that award because they had some fantastic years. And so when I won it in 2012, my very first call was to Phil Necro just because I wanted him to understand how valuable that he and Charlie Huff were in my journey. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask something to that effect where you're the first knuckleballer to win, but also being alongside Tom Seaver and Doc Gooden as the Mets to win side young awards that's a hell of a trio i mean doc good and tom siever are a dicky that's got to be pretty special as well well it would be a fun rotation for sure because you could put me right in the middle of those two and we would mess some people up oh, yeah. good luck <laughs> no, i mean but you know it's humbling for sure those guys are much better than i ever was and you know they're they're iconic in so many different ways and so to even be in the same breath with those men good grief i mean and even Degrom. I mean, DeGrom is super, super special. And not even the average, but the above average fan recognizes how elite and what a once in a generation type talent that guy is. Do you watch DeGrom? Are you watching the Mets? Because, I mean, what he does every five days is just absurd. Um, are, are you watching his starts? Yeah, I watch him from time to time. Now, I, I must admit, you know, I my son tries to watch all he can, but I can kind of come in and out of it. But I watch enough to really be able to appreciate his artistry and his craft and how seemingly natural and organic it, it comes out of him it, it's almost like he, he he's not even breaking a sweat and and doing what he's doing it's phenomenal was there a personal catcher that you preferred either in your time with the Mets or in your career you know you see a lot of pitchers have personal catchers now uh some some do better with some than others was there a catcher that you liked more than any other catcher that you played with well yeah and it was a guy that I could not I don't think I could have won as many games as I did as a New York Met in particular without him because you know there were there were uh, there were catchers that I had that went to the manager and didn't want to catch because it, they felt like it mentally took away from their ability to hit and I had a guy named Josh Toley Josh Toley was a, a longtime Met I think he was drafted by the Mets too but I liked him so much that I, you know I asked for him to be in the trade from Toronto from when I got traded to Toronto, they, they included him in the trade because of how well he caught me. He was very special at, at catching that pitch. Listen, when, when that trade happened and you get two catchers from both organizations going over flip-flopping, <laughs> you know that that's something that's heavily involved because of the difficulty in catching the knuckleball. I remember Dave Racanello getting beat up. <laughs> Reduced oh, to man, Dave up. was my best friend. I, you know, I tipped <laughs> him out good at the end of the year because I would just absolutely blow him up. And he was such a uh, champ about it, too. He was available whenever I needed to him. He was, you know, big shout out to Rack. He, he was great. Oh, my God. I remember we used to play catch. Like, we get you started playing catch. He'd throw fastballs, you know, spin over a breaking ball. And then it was like, all right, it's time for the thing. <laughs> and Rack would come over. Here comes the bullpen catcher, Dave Rackahello. Yeah. And, and he'd put on full gear just to catch him on the side, just playing catch because he would throw these knuckleballs. It was the velocity that it had on it it wasn't just you know that it would just kind of shake and dance you know we, we've seen guys be able to do that but it was the pure velocity added with it so think of like Jacob deGrom right now Jacob deGrom is like Greg Maddox with the dial turned all the way up because he can pinpoint with his location he can change mix up pitches he could change locations up and down and the movement is there but it's at 102 the hardest knuckleball that I have ever seen is R.A. Dickey's by far by far. And with that movement that he had, where sometimes it would give you the fork ball rotation, sometimes it would kind of just come in and fade away, like a change of going down and away from a lefty. And sometimes we saw this the other day. Uh, who is it? Stephen Wright from uh, 
uh, Boston. He threw one that the catcher straight up closed the mitt and missed it and hit him dead in the chest. So those have to be uh, the, the ones that you feel the best about, but you're also kind of laughing inside as you're beating up poor Dave Racanello. <laughs> yeah, it was, um, you know, and that's one of the things, a couple of quick stories is, you know, when I was learning the pitch, the only way to really learn anything or to, to do anything well is to, to repeat it over and over and over and over and over again until it just becomes, you know, your, your muscle memory takes over and, and you can hopefully produce a ball that doesn't spin. But I had to throw, this is not hyperbole, guys. I, I threw over a million knuckleballs in a five-year stint. And so I was always having to beat people up, throw it against a brick wall, find somebody that could just knock it down and throw it back. But I'll never forget playing catch when I was first starting to learn it with a position player in Oklahoma City. I got sent down from the Rangers in 05, and he was the starter for the next day. And we were just playing catch in the outfield, and, I, and you know, it, it was rumored that I was coming down to reinvent myself as knuckleballer. He said, I'll catch you, no big deal. I got it. I'm an athlete, blah, blah, blah. So I threw a couple of them, you know, they're just warming up. And then I started throwing them as hard as I, I could throw them and still take spin off. And the very first one, he went out to catch, and it broke and went directly off his patella. And... <laughs> Needless to say, he didn't start the next day. And so from then on, I got the bullpen catcher to catch me every time I could. Well, you, they, they say practice makes perfect. Talk about a knuckleball. You need a lot of practice, a million of them. I'm sure there were plenty of catchers over the years, R.A., that might have just hated you for once every five days. They, they were dropping everything in sight uh, over your starts. Well, there were a lot of guys who, like I, I can remember vividly, you know, Rod Barajas when he was with the Mets early. He he would catch me, but he hated it. And then uh -huh. like Kenji, Kenji Jojima from Seattle, he didn't want to do it. He refused to use a bigger mitt. You know, I, I would always carry around a knuckleball catcher's mitt, which was an oversized mitt, just to help the catchers be able to bat it down and, and catch it well. And, you know, he refused to use it. I didn't I didn't know if it was like, you know, a, a slap in the face for him to have to use a bigger mitt or something, but it, it would be Rick. He hated it. And then there were there were a lot of guys that hated it. There were a, My favorite was Josh Tolley, and, and a close second was Tyler Flowers for the Braves. He was pretty special at catching it as well. Yeah, Josh Tolley, I got to give a shout out to him as well. So in this week, of course, we're celebrating the nine-year anniversary of Santana's no-hitter. Josh Tolley was the catcher yeah. there. Josh Tolley was the catcher. Yep, Josh Tolley was the catcher, you know, most of your starts. And, and I remember the, that game that you came back, that last one of the season, to really put the uh, put the nail in the coffin on that Cy Young bid. Uh, Josh Tolley was there as well. Josh Tolley was actually my catcher of the first complete game shutout at City Field and that in 2009. So Josh Tolley has put his little stamp very quietly on, on some he couldn't hit moments. if his life depended on it but he could catch nelson figueroni he could definitely be ari dickey's personal catcher so put, put that on, oh, our, on yeah. his grave if you, if, you know he would bat slow in the order like eight and i would bat ninth when we played but if you got a you know if he was a one for four night i mean he, that was that was great you know and he knew it that was that wasn't why he was on the field you know he he knew that was what wasn't his ticket and that's what made him special is that you know, he was humble enough to understand that his gifts, you know, they, they manifested in the way he caught and, and the way he called games and caught. And that's what he took pride in. I love, uh, so I love bun singles and knuckleballs. And there's just not enough. There's really none. I guess Wright might be the only one. There aren't knuckleballers in the game, all right. Is it because it's just such a tough pitch to master? Why don't we see it in the game today? 
Well, I have a whole thesis around that. You know, I, 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 no one, there's no, there's no scout out there looking for the next Hoyt, Hoyt Wilhelm. You know, I mean, they're all, they're all looking for Steven Strasburg or uh, Jacob Degrom. And a knuckleball is a pitch that's really born out of desperation. It's because you can't do what you once did well that you turn to, and hopefully you can do it. That's one reason. Two is a lot of organizations just don't trust it. They don't trust, you know, that that it's going to be a, a consistent, trustworthy pitch. I mean, my the biggest hurdle in my whole career was proving to managers that I could throw this thing over the strike zone over and over and over again enough to be able to uh, compete at the major league level. And that's a hard thing to do. You know, I mean, it's, it's maddening. The pitch can be maddening because you once you let it go a lot of times, it's up to the humidity and the seams and how they interact with the wind and, you know, all that about how it's going to move. And so you really have to refine that. And not a lot of guys are willing to put in the time. I can't tell you how many guys that have called me wanting to become knuckleballers. And I, you know, they fly down to Nashville. We work together for a little while. I point out some things they could do and they just don't, it's too much for them to devote years of their life to, right? It's one thing to devote six months to trying to learn something new. And if you don't get it, you kind of move on. But this requires something completely different. Has there been a pitcher of note or maybe not of note who has asked you to teach them a knuckleball that we might know? Yeah, you know, uh, uh, I don't know if you remember Frankie Viola. It was his son, Frank Viola's son. One t- uh, he came down to Nashville, we threw together. Most recently, Brian Wilson for the San Francisco Giants, trying to make a comeback as a knuckleballer. You know, Stephen Wright was here, and we worked together for a little while. He's got probably the best one around right now, in my opinion. Um, and there's been so many more that have come that have either been amateurs that, and again, like you got to pay it forward. I had a lot of people pouring to me when it might have been an inconvenience for them. You certainly want to try to do that for other people who might have the, the dream of doing it. Figgy, should we be advertising his going rates? All right, do you have a going rate for <laughs> knuckleball lessons? <laughs> what's, what's, oh, my what's, goodness. What's funny is I remember uh, I was with the Diamondbacks one of my last years in uh, organized baseball, and we had Josh Booty, who yeah, of course, who who won the who's the next knuckleballer. He beat out Martin yeah. Mepke as and he came to camp with the uh, D backs throwing a knuckleball. He was a third baseman, a power hitting third baseman, you know, first round draft pick, a football star who wound up being a backup quarterback for I think eight or nine years in the NFL after baseball. And here he, here he is in 2013, and he shows up to camp, and he's like. Like, yeah, I'm a knuckleballer now. And uh, I sat I sat back and laughed. I'm like, holy cow. I go, you're actually in big league camp throwing a knuckleball. And it, it's, it's an amazing thing to see. I had always one question for someone like you. Could you sit back after a game and you had a bad game, say, and you go, well, it just wasn't knuckling. Nah, nothing I can do about it. Could you get away with like sleeping at night with just being able to say that like line to the to the media? Nah, do what you're supposed nah. to do? Yeah, not really, because you, you start – the thing about a knuckleball, Figgy, is that, you know, I would have days – like I had. I had one of the worst days in Major League history, right? Like my first start in 06 with the Rangers, I gave up six home runs in three and two-thirds innings and tied a modern-day Major League record. And so you have days like that, and you think to yourself, you know, what have I done? You know, kind of pinning my, my hopes on this star, you know? And it's just – it can be really maddening, and it, it, it really does require a lot of – not that I – have this again I was a lot of people help me with this but you have to have an incredible amount of mental fortitude because it you can't just say oh I didn't knuckle that day and you can tell people that to try to calm them down but in your mind you're thinking have I forgotten how to throw this pitch you know because from day to day it's going to present differently and you've got to be able to roll with that change speeds with it pitch with it you know have, have you've got to win when you don't have a great knuckleball I bet I had my Cy Young award year I had 33 starts I bet in 20 of them 
I didn't have my best knuckleball. I had to pitch with it. I had to learn how to throw a fastball in the right counts. I had to hit spots still. I had to, you know, there were all kinds of things that nuances I had to learn with that pitch. On a perfect day, you know, I throw 110 pitches and 105 of them would be knuckleball. That would be a great day, you know, and that happened probably a third of the time that year. But the other years, you still got to win. I mean, other days you still got to win. And so a lot of it was just trying to manage that. All right. If your wife or mom is mad, do they call you Robert? Do they say Robert Allen or does everyone call you R.A.? My mom calls me Robert Allen or Robert. And a lot of people here in Nashville uh, remember me as Robert Allen. But I, as long as I remember, everybody's called me R.A. I mean, I didn't have much to do with the nickname. I think I just kind of came up to it, you know. But yeah. So there's no Bob or Bobby or any of those. Yeah, a lot of people, some people call me Bobby. Some people call me Bobby V. Bob, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of variations, right? So Bobby V to Bobby D, a Mets comeback story of our future manager, R.A. Dickey. Uh, you could get R.A. Dickey's book, My Quest for uh, the Throwing Strike, My Quest for Truth and the Perfect Knuckleball. And we'll close out with this. You were working with an organization combating human trafficking. Tell us about it. Yeah, you know, I'd worked with, uh, group out of India for a long time. Um, and that's something that's very close and personal to my, my own story. And if you've read my book, you understand that I was a victim of sexual abuse for a number of years when I was younger. And um, so I really connect with that that space. And, and so when I had an opportunity to get involved here locally in Nashville, you don't think of it as being trafficking as being real prevalent in, in a first world country. But the truth of the matter is, you know, there's a lot going on right underneath my nose here in Nashville. And I felt a real conviction to try to get involved there. And the organization is called NAHT, which is the Nashville Anti-Human Trafficking Coalition. I mean, you can check them out online and feel free to donate to what the work we're doing and be great. There we go. All right, Dickie, a fantastic career. One of my favorite Mets. We love to watch you here in New York. Hope to see you at a game sometime in the future. And we appreciate you coming on the show, man. We'll talk again soon. Hey, it was my, my absolute pleasure, guys. Thanks. That says hasta la vista, baby, to episode 57, the Johan Santana edition. Yes, of Amazing But True, our Mets podcast from the New York Post. Thanks to you, Jake and Brian Munguia, for producing the show. Please subscribe to Amazing But True and give us a five-star rating and write in a nice review on Apple Podcasts. Gracias, mis amigos. For Nelson Figueroa, I'm Jake Brown. We'll be back on Monday after the Mets four games set with the Padres in San Diego. Enjoy the games, enjoy your weekend, and let's go Mets.